Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today's episode, Rachel Pagonis. Today, I'm speaking with Tina Mashey about the new book she and Keith Morgan co-authored, Aging Behind Prison Walls, Studies in Trauma and Resilience, published in 2020 by Columbia University Press. Tina Mashey is often referred to as the common person's philosopher. Dr. Mashey, who is a licensed clinical social worker, as well as having a PhD, strives to share directly with the academic and public sectors new thought, scientific research, and creative work that integrates the arts, science, and spiritual expressions. Her research and teaching is recognized for inspiring new ideas and ways of looking at things from diverse perspectives, using ongoing dialogue and contemplative actions to realize a more caring justice world. She describes herself as an author, artist, musician, scholar, researcher, scientist, practitioner, teacher, and global citizen who cares deeply about humanity, all living beings, and our universal environment. Currently, she is a full professor and researcher at Fordham University Graduate School of Social Service in New York City, where she teaches social work research and practice. She is the recipient of several awards, including the 2010 Hartford Geriatric Social Work Scholars Award, for a research project on trauma, coping, and well-being among older adults in prison. She has published over 175 peer-reviewed publications and book chapters, and has given over 200 presentations, lectures, and webinars. Keith Morgan is Associate Professor of Psychology at Centenary University, where he teaches in the undergraduate psychology and graduate counseling programs. His research on substance use trauma and prisoner mental health has been published in major scholarly journals, and he's the author of the book Substance Use Disorders and Addictions. He is also a licensed professional counselor and approved clinical supervisor and conducts a part-time psychotherapy practice in Morristown, New Jersey. Tina Mashey, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Rachel. Well, it's a real pleasure. Uh, I'm very excited to talk about your book or to listen to you talk about your book. Would you start by telling us something about yourself? What's your background and how did you become interested in aging and criminal justice? Yes, of course. Well, my background is I grew up in New Jersey in an Italian-American family, and I'm a third-generation immigrant and first-generation to attend college. And I always had a passion and interest in the philosophy of life, including using reading about Zen. (laughs) When I was probably about seven, eight years old, I read Herman Hesse. Um, And so I've always interested in the meaning of life uh, from a very early age, and we always felt called to go into some type of academic writing, creative writing type of uh, profession. And uh, and I also am a professional musician and have spent years uh, traveling and recording music, and then went to get my PhD. And at the time, I had been working in a prison, having had my degree in social work. So I really fell into working in the criminal justice system. And that's where I first worked with youth and saw the histories of trauma. And then later working with the adults and older adults, seeing the histories of trauma within people who are in the criminal justice system. And that whole dichotomy of how individuals both were traumatized or victims of, of um, some kind of act or wrongdoing, and then also in some way perpetrated it at the same time. 
So that's where my interest came in about getting interested in aging and criminal justice. Cause I wanted to know why did this happen? Why do people love each other, hurt each other? And why does it continue to happen? And how did we get this mess? When I worked in, walked into a prison, it was a mess. I've never seen anything like it, that environment. Wow. And that's one of the age old questions of humanity, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, why do we treat each other so badly? Um, Correct. How did you come to write the book? I, after working with the aging people in prison, and we're going to discuss more about them later, but it just, there was something about their tremendous sense of humanity. Most of them wanted to give back. They wanted to help other people. And it was, it just really touched me. But then there's also the other side where many of the people are sick and frail and aging and dying in prison. It also perplexed me. This, this dilemma in which we're, what is happening in a world that we're watching and hearing about people dying in prison, sometimes chained to beds, and what kind of humanity is it? And so it really perplexed me for those different reasons. I didn't know why um, it, it exactly why it happened and why we're reacting or not even we're not even seeing it. And so that's one I wanted to pay a tribute and res- and for the, give back respect to the older people for sharing their experiences. Uh, second, I began to realize that I was felt called to be their messenger until they could be messengers on their own, that I had sort of a a conduit to a sharing of their wisdom and their plight and their story. And um, and so, and it was just something I felt I needed to resolve in myself because there were so many perplexities and all the research we did, I wanted to sit down and I wanted to reflect on all that was done. I felt like I got to a point where I had collected all I needed to, and I needed to go back and look at it from a much deeper perspective. Because each study in and of itself was a piece of a puzzle. And I needed to look and take the bigger perspective, the higher perspective, and make sense of it all. And I have to say, it was them. It was the group of people that I worked with. I've, I've worked with many, many, many very talented educators, scholars, artists, musicians, and have learned so much, but there's nobody that has taught me more. And then the aging people in prison have been my greatest teachers. And so I wanted to share that wisdom with the world. Yeah. And that's something that I want to get into actually a bit later about Mm -hmm. the wisdom of the elders in prison, because again, that's not something that the general public would think about probably. Correct. Uh, We would think these are people who have a lot to learn about living in society. Uh, But can I just start out by uh, because you're speaking of caring justice, and that's a term that probably a lot of people are not familiar with. Uh, in your introduction, you begin by introducing the concept of caring justice. And the term itself is so different from the status quo. And the status quo is what you describe as an overemphasis on relentless retribution and cruel punishment for crime and wrongdoing. So caring justice, caring and justice almost sounds like an oxymoron. Where did caring justice originate? It was an idea that I thought about after reflection on the issue we, we, it, within the criminal justice system. 
we typically refer to the word criminal. And we also refer to the person who is the victim of the, of the crime committed by the criminal as a victim. And I thought about what do we have in between? Because we have the victim offender duality. You're either one or the other. Even if you look up the antonym in the dictionary for victim or criminal, you get the opposite. There's nothing in between. And so our, our whole conception of how we've conceptualized, how we conceptualized justice was in, in, as a negative thing. It's, and so we're only recognizing something that goes against and needs to be punished. It's the way that we're focusing on it. And that it's, and obviously the criminal justice system, system isn't working because it's, it's sucking up all the dollars and we have crime is increasing. Prisons are increasing in numbers. It's not working. So clearly that term and the way we're looking at it and, and conceptualize isn't working. So a term like caring justice, that's what seems to work to help to rehabilitate people. There's a, it's the care in, in different frameworks that incorporate aspects of care and empathy. And when people who told me in prison, and whether as a client, because I'm a clinician for over, uh, for over 30 years now, as well as an academic, that it was the empathy and the compare and compassion that made them turn their lives around or help them heal. Love heals. Yeah. Love and, heals. And that is, yeah, yeah, sorry to uh, talk yeah. over that. It's just such a, a very different way of, uh, as as I was saying to you earlier, a different way of, of just turning the world on its head. Yes, and, and when I'll talk about more later, it does emphasize both the feminine and masculine aspects of ourselves and puts it back into balance. And that's what justice is about. And so it actually, it feels good. It feels so much better. Okay. You know, feels better to a lot of different, um, I would say different populations, maybe, uh, as well as to society as a whole. Absolutely. It suits society because society is a safe place. We've been in so much of a fear-based mentality uh, and dualistic problem-focused thinking that we're only looking at the problem as criminal justice. And the more we focus on it, the more we create more of it. So if we focus on caring justice, in which there's love and there's balance and homeostasis, we're creating a better system. And even people in prison they will say that they turned their lives around when sh- someone showed care. And often the older person in prison for the younger person wasn't the professionals. It was the older person in prison. It wasn't the social worker. It was the older incarcerated person with possibly a serious offense history. And nobody knows better than them what, how to rehabilitate and, and come to a point of self-forgiveness uh, and to then teach the younger generations. Yeah, and of course, this particular population that you're writing of is the older adults in prison, and they have some uh, real difficult, even more difficult, perhaps, than younger prisoners' uh, experiences in prison. So I just wanted to ask a little bit about that. And you give some striking statistics about just the increase 
of older adults in prison. And for instance, and I'm quoting here, from 1999 to 2016, the number of people 55 or older in state and federal prisons increased by 280%, whereas the number of incarcerated younger adults grew by only 3%. That's really a striking difference. And you also say in 2013, about one third of state prisoners aged 65 or older were serving life sentences. And then you point out that while more and more older people are going to prison, they're not getting out. Sometimes they're dying in prison. Do you think there should be a different justice approach specifically for older adults with prison sentences? You know, that's a really good question. And, and I would say yes and no. Some people believe that there's a perspective, let's abolish prisons. So if we don't have prisons and we reform the criminal justice system, I'm not sure if we need a different approach to prison based on age. So depending on what happens with prisons. So if we abolish them, then we have to rethink what we're going to do with older people. But clearly, just like we do in the community with older people, there are some special considerations and needs that need to be addressed when people get to certain age uh, categories and or different uh, health statuses. We need to address that they might need different kinds of services. But it doesn't mean they need everything different. Like currently, almost in nursing homes, we separate older people from younger people just because they're older, which it doesn't necessarily make it the right way to go as opposed to intergenerational types of um, integration models. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Uh, and one of one of the things about older individuals in prison is that their older age may start at a younger chronological age. Uh, so one right. striking detail to me in your book is the evidence that aging is accelerated by life in prison. And the first thing that that brings to my mind is, is cancer patients, because we know that cancer treatment also accelerates aging, perhaps on a similar scale to being in prison. It's really scary to think that going to prison might be like receiving chemotherapy and radiation in terms of how it affects your aging process and things like hallmarks like frailty. Um, so I'm wondering, first of all, do we know the instance of frailty in older adults in prison? And why is there this effect of aging, accelerated aging in prison? Yes. And, and let me uh, comment um one thing about what's interesting, especially since it's a medical audience largely for the podcast, is that they probably know, but this is particularly important and true, is chronological age is different than biological age. And that's so true in the prison population, because someone of the age of 65 could have a body of someone 15 years older or someone 50 being 15 years older, being 65. Since uh, oftentimes with people in prison, age 50 to 55 is considered older in prison as compared to 65, at least in the U.S., where um, people are considered elderly. So that's something important to take into consideration. In terms of frailty, you make an excellent point there, too. The incidence of frailty varies um, depending on where the stats is, the location, but I've seen stats up as uh, 50%, especially if it's a prison setting where there are the large growing, uh, rapidly growing aging populations. 
and if they are in conditions of high violence, poor diet, lack of sunlight, and everything we know that helps accelerate an aging process or doesn't facilitate the living process, they're going to accelerate much, much quicker. With the aging people in prison, the ones that come in um, either earlier or later, it's the high-risk personal lives prior to prison, whether it be poverty, lack of unemployment, drug use, cigarette smoking, and their behavior while in prison, meaning do they get exercise, like their self-behaviors, but then there's environmental-induced behaviors where you don't aren't allowed to get out of your cell. Yes, you could for maybe an hour a day. That's not really good. If we think about what creates health, prisons do not create health. The lack of sunlight, lack of fresh air, uh, high carbohydrate diets. It's it's um it is like its own death sentence in its own its own way. And we do have high numbers, and we talk about that. And I know they're important. It doesn't seem to move people enough, though, to make the difference out of it. And it might be just for people to think about, they're listening to, just think about one frail person that they see and know in their lives and their practice and think, what what would I think if this person was in prison? Should they be in prison? Should they be in prison if they committed uh, a serious offense? Yeah, and when we have such an emphasis on preventive medicine in our society now and the plethora of advice about getting exercise, eating healthily, getting your, you know, all of your preventive health care. And then you look at how it is in prison. It's, it's just the opposite. It's doing everything that's leading, as you say, to poor health. So how does that make sense to have one set of rules for health on the inside of a prison and a completely other set of rules on the outside? Exactly. Yes. And, and, uh, and another interesting dichotomy there too is, or opposite, that sometimes prison can be a good experience for people because sometimes they're safer on the inside or they understand the environment and they don't get involved in it and they could still, they build programs and they do other amazing things while they're in there and really turn their lives around. So it's not a one size fits all, but it's easy to fall into the general brutality, top down stress and trauma and abuse of prison, which of, of course affects, affects everybody at every age. So everybody's aging, even the younger people, uh, faster than they need to. And then they're, they're going to get out. So somehow the health system's going to get them, whether it's in prison or not. Yeah, and end up paying for it somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah, and I, I wanted to talk a bit about the actual experience of being in prison because there's also this very strong psychological component to health and to healing in terms of also uh, how people fit into society. So uh, in chapter five, you cite a study of 25 25 first-time older adult offenders in a maximum security facility. And this particular study found that, and I'm quoting here, many reported feelings of fear, depression, and anxiety as a result of the vulnerability of living in a hostile environment and feelings of shame related to the social stigma of crime. They express worries about declining health and uncertainty due to continual changes in the quality of healthcare delivered. And then you add, other studies have found that older adults in prison report feeling lonely 
due to separation from their families and are depressed or anxious because they lack choices regarding their living conditions. Now, that description to me sounds like any one of us, the, the way you or I might feel. And that shouldn't be surprising. And yet it is a little bit. So I wonder if we who have never been involved in incarceration think the people in prison are less capable of normal concerns and feelings. And does that mean we think their concerns and feelings are less worthy of our concern, either as individuals or as a society? Uh, Rachel, I think that's such an excellent question in the way that you pitched it and, and thought about it, because it's, it's true. These are the human condition. So the question is, and you put it in the context as, as the reader, the listener, others looking in, the outsider perspective, what are we seeing? And that's what's so important because there is what is happening. You look at some people, you see it, but with this group, what is it? And so I could ponder what I think from having worked within the system because I'm the closest thing to an insider from being both a researcher, but also working day to day in the setting. I just got out at night, came back day to day over many years. Um, it, it, but there is this, when we think about minorities in general, of which prisoners would fall within it, and remember within the prisoners, they're not just older, they are the culmination of every disparity you could think of, disproportionate uh, representation of blacks, people of color, lower class. Um, men are overrepresented um, within that. So there's, the, but there would be the other factors, the lower class, the, the, the racial ethnic background, but women have significant health uh, issues, significant, more significant than the men. So they're less, but they're increasing more. Um, and oftentimes for crimes uh, where they were in self-defense in terms of domestic violence. Um, and so we, it's, we, it's as if people on the outside don't see it and that is that they are as if they were, they're less than and, or there's that affiliation with the term criminal It's that they deserve to suffer or they should feel guilty because they did it. And this is something you should get in return to feel all these negative emotions and to be in constant fear. Remember, a lot of them are trauma survivors too. Um, prison is triggering them. And as they're getting older, they're getting frailer, so, uh, uh, more, much more frailty. And then the fear of uh, being able to defend yourself in a tough environment, even in a female prison, it would be a, a concern. So they're in fear mode. Yeah, and it seems to me that we have learned as a society, it's pretty widely accepted now that that sort of punishment outside of prison doesn't work well. For instance, you know, we don't allow corporal punishment in schools anymore because that's not thought to be a good way to get children to learn, grow, Correct. mature, and cooperate. Right. Right. I, right. Absolutely. I always go back to the Harlow experiment with the monkey. We know that we see, and if you look up the picture of the monkey, we know that monkeys do not thrive and they barely, if even, survive when they're taken away from love and compassion and care, the caring. And so what makes us think we're going to rehabilitate people? And so getting, 
Oh yeah, yeah, go ahead. Using that method. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was going to say getting at the root of the problem a little bit. So as you say, there's a lot of, and, and you talk about it in the book, the life course accumulation of different experiences, particularly trauma and, and particularly sexual trauma and maybe especially pertaining to women prisoners. Uh, I should say women in prison. So again, it seems to me that uh, probably people outside of prison are fairly aware that there's uh, sexual abuse that takes place in prisons. But again, doesn't seem like something we're very concerned with. Um, and also, uh, but so this all goes into trauma. And I'm just wondering if you could talk about what is the role or importance of a trauma-informed approach to caring for these older adults in prison? I am all for resilience-based approaches to helping people overcome trauma. And we do use the trauma-informed uh, in, informed approach and support a lot of its tenets and beliefs. I just have, in terms of a caring justice approach, with coming up with new phraseology, it's the same idea of, as we continue to use the terms, we continue to give them power. So if it's trauma-informed, I want resilience-informed because trauma, distress, and types of things there are all different levels of it. It's bound, things happen. Death and loss, that's inevitable. We lose people. Sometimes we lose them tragically. Um, and sometimes it's just part of life. There are tragedies and there are unexpected <clears throat> things like uh, situations like crimes that weren't expected. There's a loss of a loved one. But even with those traumas the, from survivors, including people like Victor Frankl, who survived the um, Holocaust, lost all his family members, went on to develop logotherapy, which is positive-minded psychology. He says, from between the stimulus and the response lies all our freedom and our power. Meaning we have to choose, we have, we can choose how we respond to it. So we can continue to engage in being a trauma survivor. Or, and then it's always part, and, so, and this is for each person to decide. I tend to go with the perspective of a truth seeker and leave behind victimhood and bondagehood, which is contractive, restrictive, and associated with these lower level emotions we just talked about, anxiety, worry, to become a truth seeker and health-minded person, a prosperity-minded person, and move beyond that to a resilient state of being uh, up through the chain of different emotions and higher-minded emotions to find peace and the lessons learned from that experience to make life better, like Viktor Frankl or any other resilient people. You can think of any, any Gandhi and what he was able to do with the, and Martin Luther King, any Mandela overcoming tragedy, trauma, to overcoming adversity, uh, to, to thrive. So yes, it is important, and making sure that trauma-informed care gets into this aspect of helping people becoming co-creators of their lives. 
because people, it, everyone can make their choices. And these, this is just my perspective. Other people have a similar perspective, others don't. If uh, for people continue to see their lives as a victim. And yeah, so then it's, oh mm-hmm. yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you know, go ahead. I was going to ask if, if resilience therapy is then moving on beyond the trauma-informed care. I would say resilience-informed. Resilience-informed care. Yeah, yeah. And whatever terms we come up with, uh, you know, anything that looks at a positive phraseology for people to consider. Or, you know, there is the problem focus. Yes, we need to diagnose. Are there symptoms? But moving from there, um, but with the term trauma-informed always being said, we're looking for it. We're looking for the trauma. And then we don't necessarily realize that the recovery piece of it is the part that we should. Because that identity, most survivors don't exceed themselves that. They're truth seekers. They they find a new path and a new way of being. I don't think of uh, Gandhi, and they're just, or those folks, as, oh, they're trauma survivors. No, they're great minds. They're who they are, not a label. Right, right. Again, it's sort of that thing of, of uh, defining someone by the worst thing that ever happened to them, which is sometimes right. what would be described about someone who's been incarcerated. Right. Uh, but in a different way, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then let's talk about caring justice itself more. Um, because you've got, as you say, these new ways of thinking about the old problems. And, and I have to say for myself, and I like to think of myself as a sort of enlightened person, obviously not completely enlightened. Uh, but several times while reading this book, I, I felt something just shift in my mind suddenly. And like, you know, like something just moving back into place. And one of those times was when you wrote of the wisdom that el- elders in prison have to offer. And just using the term elder moved the perspective from looking at an old person who's decaying or needy to someone with a kind of of spiritual power. So from your research and all your work in prisons, what can we learn from elders in prison? You know, you're you're very good and very intuitive and you really picked up uh, uh, with the subtle messages when I wrote this book. Because I had to come up with, because there is the reality of there is the aging people in prison issue, which we need to deal with on a real live day-to-day basis. It is a problem we must address and come up with solutions. But there are many metaphors. And and as we talked a little bit uh, off recording and in some of the articles that came out based on the messages in the book, there is it is the story of humanity in that it's we were born our race and we're all born we come into our own humanity but also the human race where we expect a, a good life and then we come into this brutal type of world and we make mistakes and and we all sort of fall from innocence and we're guilty and some of us end up literally in prison um, in out of touch and out of mind as if it doesn't exist. And for most of us, uh, for a long time, I happened to work in prisons, but didn't think much about them before that. That's why I was surprised when I walked into like, where did this, this come from this world we created? Although it might've been brutal. I was sort of used to hearing about community violence and mistreatment of people, but in prison, there was something so much more accentuated about it. Um, so, 
with the older people, on the downside, when we do see them as older and frail, but the use of the term elder, when I bring that in later, it's to start to w- awaken people to, to that there is a bigger picture here. And you picked up on that because there are the wise elder, like the wise elders in, in indigenous tribes. And then when societies are much more integrated and intergenerational in the sharing, because there's that creative aspect of the child and the inner child, and you mix that with the older elder, um, then you have wisdom creation. And that's actually the name of my um, outside project where I'm disseminating information about caring justice, because there is a higher level spiritual part. And, it's, and it might be tapping in also individually into one's inner consciousness and the wise elder, that higher self that offers wisdom you can always count on because it's the experience it's the wisdom that you earn by experience, not what you read about in a book, not about from stressed out professors on tenure track, pumping out articles to get tenure. Um, you know, we're talking about wisdom that comes from within with um, this group of people. Right. And there was that one man that you uh, profiled. He spoke to you considerably and he wrote something and it was, I don't remember exactly how it went, but it, you may have your PhD, but I've got my, um, I can't remember what it was, like his um, his life experience or something, or his religious faith. I can't remember what it was. Yeah. Uh, but just contrasting it to that, you know, you've got your book learning, uh, but I've got this that, that gives me a kind of wisdom. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it's a, in an article also published online for people they could see. Um, it's a new book reveals life lessons from older adults behind bars. And I'll actually read it. Um, I have the quote. It's at the end. Yeah, great. I once, I was once a fool, but now I'm wise. And actually, let me say his name is, he calls himself the unchained mind of Mr. J. And he says, I once was a fool but now I'm wise. I once was blind, but now I see. I once was deaf, but now I hear. I once was ignorant, but now I use intelligence. You have your PhD, but I have knowledge and inspiration that comes from a higher power, the one and only true God. A mind is a terrible thing to waste, so is the soul. That was it. And how long had he been in prison? He had been in prison for a life sentence. I would say that he was probably at least there 30 years or more. Hmm. And so he took that time to really explore his inner landscape and get in touch with that. And so that's part of what the wise elder, and all of us can have this in us. It doesn't matter. And what, what I think that they're teaching us is that you can return to innocence even when you've done things and get to a point of self-forgiveness and move beyond that to become wise and, and offer to people and return to innocence and share it. You're not stuck in that mold. You're ever-changing and also where you're getting your wisdom from. So in getting your intuitive hits and incorporating them along with knowledge generated, deductive knowledge that we apply on the outside, yes, it's important, but that type of inspiration. And that will help people guide their way back to a caring justice model where is this right? 
is this what I want to? Is this what my my um, wise elder would want to send this this nineteen year old to prison for the rest of her life? Yeah, and some of the elders that you mentioned in the book who had found a, a kind of spiritual peace had done that through helping other prisoners, often the ones who were really sick or dying in some cases. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And if we think about that, and even again, in the community, we know people get high. There's research that supports helping others is just another, it's a higher expression of universal love, universal care. It, it, it leads to better help. It's that giving aspect, how we like to help one another. Yes. And it's interesting because if you put that into the picture of uh, the people who are running the prisons and many people who are employed by them, they're the opposites. You know, they're there to punish. They're not there to help. So they're not cultivating that sort of consciousness as they go. Yes. And we're in the book, it goes into a little bit, but, um, but this idea of the problem focus, when you're in problem focus and binary thinking, it's, it's, it's victim, versus offender, once a criminal, always a criminal, and you get stuck. Uh, and it's getting over to the create creative solution focus, unity type of thinking. When we think in it, we talk in the book it talks about caring justice and that the idea that we all are interconnected, which is scientifically supported, uh, although it's based in indigenous ways of knowing, uh, but there's also empirical support that we all are interconnected. That once you do something to someone, you do it to yourself. So do you want to share goodness or do you want to share negativity? But if we're in the old model, then this idea of punishment is what we know. And what we need to do is teach us new ways, new languages and practices that are more consistent with a caring justice approach or whatever term people want to use. I tend to use that. It, it, seems to soothe people, work for other people, and it certainly works for me. It calms me down. <laughs> so that's a good thought. And I like to be in that calm space when I write because it, it comes from that wiser Mr. J unchained mind space. Um, so I think that's important to think about, that even the people in prison, they're traumatized too, the people who work there. They're in the top-down method, especially for men. I've got an 11-year-old son, and he's a boy, and he's innocent, and just like every other boy out there. And so we need to look at them and give them the opportunity for them to also be caring without calling them a sissy, getting beat up or bullied or whatever. Let them. Let them embody these feminine principles and let women and girls embody their masculine principles and let's get back to left and right brain integration. Yeah, it's interesting. This raises a lot of things for me, but uh, I'll focus on this one. So uh, you have a chapter, chapter nine, accepting the gift of life. And it it focuses on energetic and spiritual philosophies and practices. And of course, uh, being a Chinese medicine practitioner myself, when you talk about the female and the male, and I think of yin and yang, and of course, that's a, a way that I see life. And these energetic and spiritual practices, they certainly have a following among a minority of the public, and, and I am one of them. 
I'm wondering, though, realistically, how integrated do you think they can become in the U.S. prison system? I think coming from a unity type of perspective, a, a solution-focused perspective, uh, there is so much opportunity for it, for the type of energetic and spiritual philosophies and practices to be used within the prisons. I'll just give some of many examples of how that could be used. Uh, in the way that we interpret, we have t- charts and tables in there too. The way we look at the kinds of issues. So I come from a social work background. And so I always talk about that we were always, you know, every profession has their little tidbit they like to boast about. But we're the biopsychosocial, spiritual, structural medicine, um, of which love is the medicine of all medicine, because we're very big on the empathy and unconditional love aspect. I'm not the only profession, but social work has been noted for really looking at social aspects and the impacts on health. Now, public health and the health profession has just sort of caught up to the social determinants of health. And so there's a common agreement that social determinants, poverty, race, employment status, education, influence your health status across the life course, incarceration status, correct? Right. And so there's these structural elements. So if we start to tie it into Chinese medicine and we start to, uh, we, we map them to the chakras, you know, so abundance and, and uh, the root chakra. If then, if we're looking at people in prison and the kinds of issues they have, uh, can't, uh, uh, they're living in poverty, can't seem to keep a job, they probably might be have a closed root chakra. There's a high probability that that w- could be so. Is that it's not only just that, they, or blaming on them, that they actually could have some in, in energetic imbalances. And given that we're talking about justice and going back to balance and homeostasis, this kind of makes sense theoretically. And um, so this this has somewhat been explored, um, the use of Reiki and different modalities, but certainly yoga has been done a lot and seems to help people. So it's balancing something and the use of mindfulness and those type of activities. So it goes to show that there is an energetic thing. And it's the same thing as we talked about before. Of course, if there just happen to be people in prison, they do have seven, or depend on what system you go with, but um, they do have energetic bodies. And then a lot of them with the emotional realm, if that's a driver of what leads them to the behavior, then we need to address the emotional body with emotional types of treatments. And it could be the energy medicines in terms of anything from psychological all the way to acupuncture, acupressure, and different um, alternative healing modalities for the body. The body is a big piece of the trauma, as, as uh, we, you and most of the audience would know. And this group needs, needs it most of all. Well, and it certainly makes sense because if, for instance, people who are uh, well-to-do, middle-class, uh, more elite, can benefit, and they certainly believe they do from unblocking their chakras or um, you know, moving their energy blocks or moving their chi, then certainly people who have had much more difficult experiences in life, we would assume, 
they would benefit at least as much. Absolutely. So why not apply the same theories that should be applied universally? Yes. And a lot of people in prison could have a background in different kinds of spiritual traditions. Mm-hmm. And in the book, Accepting the Gift of Life, we give what they did naturally and packed it, pitched it as a program that they're giving to us, which they did engage in mindfulness type of contemplative practices, did practice Buddhist philosophies of kindness, did give to others in prison, uh, and really, you know, like um, the unchained mind. Them taking the time to be in the study, it, 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 I realized it wasn't them helping me, or help, they wanted to help. It was it wasn't me helping them; they were helping me, or and it was an exchange. It was an energetic exchange of giving and receiving um, between each other. Um, and if anyone of all, they taught me that love was the medicine of all medicine. And it's like after all that, uh, after it's like they were my little monkey, <laughs> my Harlow monkey, saying, "Oh yeah, okay, I get it." But they and they transcended it. And if anyone, you would think that they wouldn't do it. So they actually are living embodiment of those philosophies in a very, very real way. And if anybody, other countries like uh, Northern Ireland, they let the older people out, the political prisoners uh, with the conflict between the um, Irish, the uh, within white group religious Catholics versus Protestants, <clears throat> they let them out to help come up with the solutions in government, the peace within the community. So we have a group of people there who have a lot, a lot that they could share, whether they be on the inside or we let them out to go work with legislatures and helping to heal the young people in the communities. Because we took a lot of the elders off the streets. A lot of people came out of prison would tell me, there used to be the older person on the corner telling us, get inside, stay off the streets. And when that stopped, then things changed in the communities when the presence of the elders. So we need them just as much. And we need to come back to the intergenerations um, where there is the wisdom and, and the wisdom, the philosophies. When we think about any of the philosophies we develop, these people thought about this their whole lives and evolved these ideas. There's and that wisdom that you get with time, that practice wisdom. You don't have to be Buddha. You can be just your everyday, the everyday Buddha or whatever person you admire. Yeah, and I think something else I got from your book was that at one point you cite a statistic on how many people have uh, sought out religious practices or find that religion is. Uh, deeply important to them in prison. And it's something like 85%, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So there's obviously people who are seeking. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And and we probably perhaps don't know that on the outside. And there is the metaphor of that we are also in lockdown now too. And if we take, rather than seeing social isolation as the worst thing, to take the opportunity for solitude and reflection, and this calls for every doctor, too. The professionals taking care of people. I'm a professional taking care of people, educating students. And I have to reflect, too. How can I do things better? How can I return to more and more a state of innocence where I'm integrating 
both my creative inner child with my wise elder so that I can, so that I can use that wisdom to create programs and ideas that really might shift the world to a caring justice type of world we deserve. Brutality is not our normal. Well, and it's interesting because we seem to think that the system that we have is the way things are, but I know that um, what you're talking about is not just fantasy. Not only do you cite particular programs, but I know, for instance, I have a cousin who's uh, spent her life working in the prison system in Norway, where uh, they do things like uh, bake Christmas cookies and take them to the people uh, in prison. And all of the people who work in the prison got together and made a video that was on YouTube where they were singing about making the world a better place. So they were cultivating their own um, you know, sort of sort of spirit. And I know in Chinese medicine, we talk about cultivating our chi so that we can be better healers. So you sort of address this in the book. Periodically throughout the book, you pose rhetorical questions about how the world might look if things were different, or you ask the reader to think about themselves or their actions in some way. So it seems clear to me that your belief is that a level of consciousness raising must occur before meaningful change can be enacted on a broader scale. Uh, In chapter eight, a caring justice partnership paradigm, you really hone in on that. So my question is, uh, who needs to read this book for widespread change to occur? I would say anyone who really wants to change their life, realize that they're at a point where they're looking for something and they just haven't found it yet, that yearning, that, that it just something is missing that they don't understand why they're making decisions or why they feel or don't feel this way. This book and will help open you up to new ways of looking at your same old life. If there's anything especially you want to change, if the focus is you, and, and I guess the criminal justice too, if you want to look at the bigger picture. But if you are ready to hear the message as it relates to you, there's so much that can be learned from the story of humanity as told by the enactment, the acting of all of us in this play of life of which the current focus is almost as if we're watching a reality TV show of people, older people in prison, and we're getting the opportunity to look back at it. And you're asked a question and some people even say this actual question, if you get to the end point of your life, like so many people in prison, and you're on that, you know, towards the end of life, what did you do, your life, to show love, to show you care? What did, you know, how did you express love? And you have to ask yourself, how did I? Because, and think about it. And that you have the opportunity to turn that around. Because it's if we see what hatred has done to the world, we see what hatred has done to our individual lives. We see what miscommunication and conflict-ridden conversation has done to families. We've seen what they've done to our internal aspects. And one thing we do have control of, we don't have control over the criminal justice system per se, but we do have control over ourselves. We've got everything we can do. To, to change ourselves. And what's so important is, is that the 
and it gets into that in the book, that it starts with ourselves. We are the creators of our experience. If you're willing to entertain that, you can change your world into something so magnificent. Because we're having this conversation today. Caring justice isn't coming. It's already here. This is, this is the new year. This is it. We're in it. No turning back. We've been in it, but if you haven't noticed it, this is January 1, no matter when, 2021, no matter when you listen, you are here. And when you look for it, you open your eyes, like Rachel's example of Norway and people singing in prison. Yes, there were people singing in prison. Did you sing? Is a question. Did you sing? And I could sing uh, this um, for everyone, too. Uh, and I've actually gotten into my music, but... Um, it's a very Hawaiian um, prayer, and it would be just a minute here. I'll just sing it like twice. Yeah, that's great. And it gets, um, and the words are, "I love you. I am sorry. Please forgive me. Thank you." And so it's all expressions of love. Love is love, and forgiveness. It's returning to love, and thank you for gratitude. I love you. I am sorry. Please forgive me. Thank you, thank you, I love you, I am sorry, please forgive me, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Wow. That's beautiful and powerful. I want to have a sing-along with everyone, with all our listeners. As um, we can. Do you want us to do more? Uh, I, <laughs> I hesitate to put my voice out there. Um, I, I could sing it a little bit longer, and uh, people can uh, sing with it not being taped. Well, um, I'm wondering, so maybe we could end with that? But yeah, uh, yes. can I ask? <laughs> yeah. So I just wanted to ask you one more question first, because we've taken up a lot of your time and I, I don't want to keep you here all day. But um, I just wanted to ask actually what you're working on now uh, or what's coming next. And then we can get back to one more rendition of the song. Yeah. Thank, thanks so much for asking that, Rachel. I do want to say thank you so much for having me. And uh, when I look, I'm going more on the inspired um, way of moving. And it seems to be going with caring justice and, and spreading information about that and really developing the framework, um, starting to collaborate with people with field-based projects that we're developing based on the framework, uh, including through the United Nations. So it's just spreading, just spreading the word and through my music, through my scholarly writing and whatever kind of modality that I can get that out. Cause this not only talks about aging prisoners, but could help solve the, the violence in the communities and the discord happening everywhere, at least give everyone a perspective as to why it's all happening and that they do have so many opportunities because the power lies within peace within becomes peace without Buddha said it. And we have even evidence to show it. Everything's cooperated. Well, it's a very good message for the new year to begin with. Yes, it is. Yes. It's and, 
Yeah. 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 And I do hope people will, um, will read this book and because it really makes you think. And as I said, I, I just often felt a, a mental shift, which as you keep getting it is what really needs to happen to not see things from this perspective, but to completely turn it around. Right. And, approach it in a, a different way. And as you say, going from criminal justice to caring justice is the, the language is powerful. Yeah. But, and it, yeah. Yeah. Just the, 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 uh, the, the mental shift is even more powerful. Yeah. And thank you so much for, um, such a, um, picking that up. And I was hoping that it would, cause I was trying to figure out a way, how could I get people to see this? And, um, so it was a labor of love and it took a lot out of me, a very deep reflective thinking. And I highly encourage people to do that in their lives if they don't, especially scholars think about what they're um, writing about thoroughly because our work impacts people's lives. All of our, no matter who you are, but especially um, people making recommendations for public, for the public good to really think about it. And uh, so it, it seems to get, and it's really about open your heart. That's what it is. It, that's, it's when you're not feeling something or you're feeling discord. Go, listen to your heart. Listen to that inner emotional guidance and follow what feels like the ethical, moral thing to do. Not just what you're told to do. Not what everybody else thinks, but to stand up, be bold, be authentic. Great. Okay. And can we end with, would you sing the song one more time? That would be Absolutely wonderful to end. <laughs> I, I'll, I, I can, I can see it for, I'll do four rounds. It sound good. Um, that'd that be sounds, about a minute or two. Yeah, that sounds and, good. Uh, also, there's a song, We Are All Aging Prisoners, that is online. That actually is the, all of my research findings put to music. And the important thing is to forgive is to set the prisoner free and realize the prisoner is you. And this um, song, when I sing it again, this uh, Hawaiian little um, prayer will help you achieve that in a very short period of time. You could sing it on your own or sing it along with these these four rounds. And this is just, I put it to music. I am sorry. Please forgive me. Let me do that again. Can you cut that part? (laughs) Sure. I love you. I am sorry. Please forgive me. Thank you. Thank you. I love you. I am sorry. Please forgive me. Thank you. Thank you. I love you. I am sorry. Please forgive me. Thank you. Thank you. I love you. I am sorry. Please forgive me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's beautiful. And Tina, thank you so much for joining us on the New Books Network today and talking about your book, Aging Behind Prison Walls. Thank you so much, Rachel, for having me. Uh